and welcome again to another edition of Lost in Science. This is half an hour on your radio where we will be talking about sciencey things. Who are we? Well, I am Stu and with me on the show this week I have Catriona. Hello, how are you going? I'm very well and what sciencey science have you got for us to ponder on this week? I'm going to talk about satellites and the light that they give off. Ah, oh, we're seeing a bit of uh, a bit of fuss about satellites recently. <laughs> People yes. are getting a bit upset about them, aren't they? Yeah, a little bit. So we'll, we'll talk about why people are getting a little bit upset, or at least why astronomers and stargazers in particular are getting a bit upset. Yeah, and I, you know, it, it's it's interesting seeing how many um, you know it used to be a, a well, it was a groundbreaking thing when the first sat- artificial satellite went up. It's a little bit more common than that now and kind of if you think of wanting, if you want a satellite, you can have one. You just pay the right people. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. It's all about the money now, apparently. Yeah. Well, I think that's space seems to be going that way. Space with a dollar sign at the start. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, I'm I'm talking about something to do with economics and money and – well, possibly exploiting the natural world Ooh. as well a little bit. Um, I'm talking about silk. Okay. And uh, well, where does silk come from, and what is it, and why is there big money in silk, and particularly different creatures that produce silk, and and some of the things that people have been doing to try and get better silk out of animals. Oh, I didn't realize that. Um, you know. Silk came from many different animals. I know a couple, you, but yeah. You will you will be surprised and yeah. amazed, <laughs> I think. I look forward to um, it. Yeah. So, um, look, let's just jump right into it and get on with the show. In the history of science, novel and innovative concepts occasionally arise from sudden left-field inspiration. Nothing shocks me. I'm a scientist. But I'd rather be remembered for my own small contributions to science. As a scientist, I don't want to prejudice my experiment. I'll let you know in the morning. I am a scientist! I think they're scientists. I bring scientists. You bring a rock star. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you are listening to Lost in Science. So some of you may be using the internet to listen to us right now. Others of you are listening over the radio waves. But but even if you're not using the internet right now, we're currently using it to record. <laughs> so... Our ability to have access to the internet or use a mobile phone pretty much anywhere in the world has been more and more taken for granted, I think. But the brightness of internet and telecommunication satellites that allow for this global communications network that we have could pose problems for astronomy, which I sort of alluded to. Astronomers may be some of the people who are upset (laughs) about all the satellites. So large constellations of bright artificial satellites in low Earth orbit in particular pose significant challenges to ground-based astronomy. So if you think of the observatories and the telescopes that are on the ground pointing out. And low Earth orbit is, as the name suggests, an orbit that's relatively close to the Earth's surface. And it's normally at an altitude between about 160 to 1,000 kilometers above Earth. And for context, the International Space Station is 400 kilometres above us. So when it passes over Melbourne, it's closer to us than Malakuta is. 
Oh, wow. I'd never thought of it that way. Yeah, neither had I. I I was sort of thinking about what cities are more than 400 kilometers away from Melbourne and Mallacoota is just over that. So you you mentioned that there are many satellites out there and the number has really gone up. So at the moment, there are just over 7,700 active satellites in low Earth orbit. There's that many active satellites that suggests there might be ones that are still up there that aren't active as well. Yes, absolutely. So in terms of inactive satellites and rocket debris and all that, um, they say that there are about 27,000 objects that are bigger than a tennis ball in low Earth orbit. That's a lot. It's a lot of junk. (laughs) And also for for anyone who's going to travel up in a spacecraft, a tennis ball-sized object would be not something you want to hit. Exactly. So that's another problem. So it's not just a problem for astronomers, the fact that there's so much up there. It's if we ever want to leave Earth, (laughs) we have to navigate through all of this. Um, and it's, it poses a problem if bits of space junk collide with each other. To get back to this idea of, of constellations, uh, they're artificial satellites that kind of work together as a system. So unlike a single satellite, a constellation can provide permanent global or, or near global coverage so that at any time, everywhere on Earth, at least one satellite is, is covering that spot. Um, So an example of a satellite constellation is the Global Positioning System satellites, but they're 20,000 kilometres above Earth, so a little bit further than what I'm talking about. They're way out then. They are way out, but they're not the furthest. The geostationary satellites are 36,000 kilometres above Earth. Wow. Yeah. And then then you think about the moon. The moon's a natural satellite, but (laughs) it's it's also a satellite that's 385,000 kilometres away. So all of these things orbiting the Earth. The moon is so far away, but it's pretty bright Mm. when the sun's shining right on it. So I guess, does that mean things that are closer, would they be brighter? Okay, so I'm going to get into this. Okay. (laughs) Not necessarily because of their distance, but because people have been looking at how bright are these objects. People hadn't really quantified it before. So in terms of some some very recent science news, University of Illinois aerospace engineer Siegfried Ogle coordinated an international study. So this is a study between lots of people around the world looking up, and they confirmed that recently deployed satellites are as bright as stars that we can see just with our eyes. So they didn't compare it quite to the moon, um, but they're more thinking about other stars. And they can even be among the brightest objects in the night sky. So the International Astronomical Union has a recommendation of a magnitude of seven for brightness to maintain dark and quiet skies. So if you think about this as a scale, seven is as low as they want you to be. A low number is very bright. So the lower the number, the brighter the object And the brightest star in the night sky, Sirius, is minus one. So that's sort of as as low as the stars go. Uh, Venus can be at minus four at times. So that can go down really low. But essentially, the International Astronomical Union want people or want satellites to stay above seven. And in this particular study, they looked at one constellation in particular, so the AST Space Mobile's Blue Walker 3, which is a constellation prototype satellite that was launched in 2022, and it reached a peak brightness of a magnitude 0.4. So that's 
pretty, it's, it's much closer to minus one than it is to the recommendation of seven. Um, and so that makes it one of the brightest objects in the night sky. And wow. yeah, right. And, and currently orbiting constellation satellites often tend to have a brightness between about four to six. So all of them are still also above or below how, depending on how you want to think about it, they, they are essentially brighter than what the recommendation is. So we need to really think about um, this, this risk to telescopes, this risk to our ability to see the stars. And you might think, ah, oh, if there are bright stars, a few more bright satellites won't make a difference. But we were just talking about the fact that there are already many satellites and there are companies that plan to launch many, many more. So for example, SpaceX has already launched some and has permission to launch thousands of Starlink satellites. They nearly have 12,000 planned to be deployed and then with the possible extension to 42,000. And that's just one company. And what, you know, is, is that just to increase internet coverage? Is there any real justification for putting that many satellites up there when we've actually got you know, we've got optical fiber cables. We've got all other means of getting internet all over the place. Do we really need space internet? Yeah, I I don't know. There are multiple companies that are that are claiming to want to be able to you know, get all the bits of coverage and and make sure that the entire Earth can be connected. But yeah, I I do wonder if that's why a lot of these companies haven't got the permission to launch as many as they sort of project in the future as many as they want to yeah 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 um perhaps it's sort of just like a we'll wait and see situation like will we actually really need them Mm. yeah i mean hopefully that's kind of what it is but when you look at the the launches of satellites um there are some companies that have you know one out of question mark launched so you know it's it's unconfirmed how many they'll eventually be launching Mm. So this this is sort of a more recent study in a sort of field that has been been blooming in terms of people thinking about how satellites and even space debris, so all those bits of space junk that we're talking about as well, may increase the overall brightness of the night sky. And in a paper published in March, members of the International Dark Sky Alliance predicted that performance of a major astronomical sky survey was going to be impacted by all the stuff that's out there now. So this is kind of a prediction, but based on um, all of their observations so far and, and, and how the night sky has been impacted. So they looked at a particular observatory, the Vera Rubin Observatory, which plans to look out into space from 2024. And they found that by 2030, all the reflected lights coming off objects in low Earth orbit are going to increase the background brightness for the survey by at least 7.5% compared to an unpolluted sky. So it's decreasing the efficiency of the survey and our ability to, to look at the sky by that much. And then over the 10-year lifetime of the survey, so they hope to run this survey for 10 years, they estimate that it's going to add some $21.8 million US to the total project cost because people are going to have to do longer exposures in order to capture things and um, it's just going to be harder and harder to see things. So 
brighter skies mean that it's it's harder and harder to to see what's out there and and this sort of increase in i guess traffic in low earth orbit with so many satellites is going to lead to loss of astronomical data and also diminish the opportunities that that we have to look for faint astrophysical signals so faint phenomena that are a little bit rarer or a little bit fainter, like asteroids, for example, asteroids that are coming towards Earth, <laughs> they'll just be lost in the noise. So it's really something that we have to consider. There are solutions, but we need them quickly. General, we look for new law by the following process. First, we guess it. <laughs> then we compute. So don't laugh. That's the really true. Then we compute the consequences of the guess to see what, if this is right, if this law that we guess is right, we see what it would imply. And then we compare those computation results to nature. Or we say compare to experiment or experience. Compare it directly with observation to see if it, if it works. If it disagrees with experiment, it's wrong. And that simple statement is the key to science. It doesn't make a difference how beautiful your guess is. It doesn't make a difference how smart you are who made the guess or what his name is. If it disagrees with experiment, it's wrong. That's all there is to it. I think we're lost. We're not lost. Not even any short-range radio signals yet? Except for a single, very powerful radio emission. Of course, a transmitter of that sort isn't exactly standard equipment. Science and technology must be absolutely mind-boggling. Of course, that's uh, it's mostly on the theoretical side. What so far? Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. Now, Catriona, do you know where silk comes from? Well, I've heard of silk worms. Um, I also know that spiders make silk, right? That that is true. That is true. Okay. But I mean, you know, that's all most I know. Of the, okay, most most of the silk that we would come across, you see it, you know, as clothes and mm. whatever. Um, that comes from silkworms, and silkworms yeah. are the larvae of the domestic silk moth, which is called Bombyx mori. Which is, I've got to say, it's an adorable little moth. It's all white and fluffy, 
and it's got you know it's got that you know how some moths have the cute little fluffy antennae. Mm-hmm. That like it's got them. those. Yeah, it's got those. Um, I'm sure it would still give lepidoptera phobes the creeps because <laughs> you know people who are scared of moths are going to be scared of even the cute moths. Um, but this particular moth, it's been bred in captivity from wild silk moths, which which are a related mm. species. Mm-hmm. Um, with which it can still hybridize, but the domestic moths have lost all their pigment mm. because of selective captive breeding for at least a few centuries. We don't really know when they were domesticated and, and artificially bred. Yeah, okay. um, but they, yeah, they're, they're basically all white. They, whereas, you know, wild moths are various camouflage levels and that sort of thing. So people um, didn't care about the colour of the moth. They were just like, we want the silk. <laughs> they were not selecting for colour. They were mm. selecting for silk production. Um, so they are bred for the juvenile phase of the moth life cycle when they start off like most lepidopterans as very hungry caterpillars <laughs> who like eating mulberry leaves. That's their that's their favoured um, food source. They will eat other species of leaves, mostly in that um, genus, which is actually the fig family that the mulberries are in. Mm-hmm. But um, so the, the larvae molt four times before they pupate and pupation is the economically important phase of the silk moth life cycle because this is when they make a cocoon and what do they make their cocoons out of but silk fibres which they produce themselves. Or if you look at it another way, I suppose, silk fibres are derived from the cocoons of silk moths, but same, same. It's, hmm. This is where we get the silk from. But they're making it for, you know, to wrap themselves up in to turn into little moths. Now, the downside for the little silkworms is that in order to harvest silk fibres, which can be almost two kilometres long. Wow. Individually. They have to be stopped from coming out of the cocoon. Oh. So when, when they emerge from the cocoon, they produce digestive enzymes which break down the silk fibres so they can get out of the cocoon. And that results in lots of little short strands of silk instead of big long ones that you can make into fabric and things. So what they usually do is boil them uh, and then unravel the silk in one piece, which they then use to make fabric. Um, And it's used to make clothing and ties and also other things. It has been used to make parachutes. They used to make parachutes out of canvas, which you can imagine is not the best (laughs) material for making parachutes. Obviously, silk is a lot lighter and easier to pack into a small space, but it is also super strong. Yeah. Well, um, I'm imagining, you know, like, how many silkworms would it take to make one parachute? <laughs> oh, thousands, thousands. <laughs> um, now, as I said before, silkworms are not the only animals to produce silk, mm-hmm. but currently the only commercially cultivated species. But there's other creatures also produce silk, including... And this, this, this is where it's going to maybe blow your mind a little bit. Bees. Wow. Wasps. Ants. Leafhoppers. Various beetles. Fleas. Flies. 
and lace wings. So this is all insects, all yeah. different kinds of insects. And obviously various other arthropods, including, of course, spiders. Mm-hmm. This is, you know, the, the, the way, you know, most people come across spider webs is by getting stuck in them. Yeah. But, um, you know, walking down the side to put stuff in the bin late at night and you find, oh, a spider's moved in because it's stuck to my face now. Now, spider silk has been of interest as a potential material for quite a long time because it is stronger and lighter even than moth-produced silk. It's actually for tensile strength and weight-bearing ability. It's stronger than steel would be at a similar size, which is that's pretty incredible. But it is pretty; it's amazing, and it could be used to make very tough materials that would protect the wearer. Like, you know, motorcyclists wear like rip-proof clothing and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but could be used to make because of its other properties, could be used to make bulletproof vests and things like that. So it's really, really strong stuff. Yeah. But if you think about spiders and getting silk from spiders, it's a lot less enticing to farm <laughs> spiders for silk rather than fluffy white little moths. and, and That apparently look moth- very cute. <laughs> yeah, moth larvae. Uh, and obviously we know, you know, th- these, these silk fibres are made of protein strands. Um, they have tried synthesising these protein strands artificially. Uh, it's... It's not really feasible in practical terms to develop that as a as a viable uh, production method to synthesize it. We can do it. It's just not cheap. Um, it's not going to compete with other materials. So some research has looked into genetically modifying bacteria and yeast to produce silk. Um, the main issue with those uh, options is that they run into problems because the organisms then produce enzymes that chop up the silk proteins as they are right. produced and they get little tiny short fragments of silk fibres. So it's not really all that uh, viable as a, as a means of producing the silk. Mm-hmm. Now, a Canadian company even genetically modified goats to produce Whoa. spider silk. Um, but the weird thing about this this uh, experiment, I suppose, um, they produced the, the silk proteins in their milk. I was so going to ask where it came out of. <laughs> yeah, it's the, they're like you think, oh, the goats just grow spider silk yeah. instead of fur or something. No, no, no. They, they have protein, the silk, spider silk proteins in their milk, which right. doesn't, doesn't result in really long strands of silk, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, the goats have since retired after the company went broke. Um <laughs> They didn't really get anywhere with that with that project. Now, one possibility is to genetically modify silk moths to produce spider silk, which could then be harvested using the existing cultivation methods and result in longer strands of silk, similar to the cocoons they already produce. Um, previous attempts at this have resulted in larvae that could produce a sort of hybrid silk, which was somewhere between 20 and 30% spider silk with with improved strength and improved resilience compared to typical moth silk but it's not really up to scratch and the effort was not really worth going to to get that you know 20% improved uh moth silk i suppose 
Um, but in a recently published paper in the journal Matter from Chinese researchers, uh, the use of CRISPR has resulted in the production of 100% spider silk from transgenic silkworms. So they introduced the genes for spider silk production into silkworms and specifically targeted the silk-producing genome of the moths, Mm -hmm. which then underwent a selective breeding program. So they introduced the genes into the population, then bred from those uh, transgenic moths to produce offspring that has inherited copies of the spider silk genes from both parents and therefore they produce 100% or close to 100% spider silk rather than um, silkworm silk, Mm. I suppose. Um, Now, this is a big step forward and they have been successful in producing big long strands of spider silk from these transgenic silkworms. The big issue for their research now is to see whether the genes remain stable in the population or whether Mm. the genes may break down after several generations. They don't know if they will be able to keep breeding, uh, you know, spider silk producing silkworms for multiple generations. They may have to reintroduce the, the genes repeatedly over time, depending. They're still working on that. It's still likely to be a lot easier than farming spiders for silk because <laughs> spiders tend to eat each other rather than mm. uh, an easily grown food source like mulberry leaves. There's plenty of mulberry leaves around. <laughs> you know, you run out of you run out of spiders quite quickly if you put them in the same place. You know, in in the end, it, it's an interesting jump forward. But I think um, in a lot of ways, it would be a much less marketable superhero who was bitten by a genetically modified. <laughs> Silkworm. <laughs> moth lava. Would would people really be happy with a friendly neighbourhood mothman? Well, you said they were cute, so, you know, I'll take it. And that is all we have time for this week on Lost in Science. Thank you for joining us in Getting Lost. If you have any questions or suggestions for the team, get in touch with us by email. We are lostinsci at gmail.com or you can find us on the ubiquitous Facebook. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne on the land of the Kulin Nation and is broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. You can find a podcast version of the show on 3cr.org.au or you can tune in the way you did this week when we return in our usual time slot to get Lost in Science! Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 
3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.